Let's pray. God, my heart is just full. And even to thank God that as a church that we are not just a few years old, but that we're this family that's been journeying together now for over a decade. And that we've walked paths, and, and the paths that we've, we've walked are stories that we can tell about your redemption in our lives. We're, we're, we're grateful, God. In a world where there's so little hope, you've blessed us with hope. Hope that's in Christ. So God, as we look at your word right now, um, open the eyes of our heart. Let it just be pushed deep into the soul of our existence. Not just so we can know more, but God, that your word would shape us today to be what you want us to be. And to know the one that you have made us to know, yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, next week we're starting Revelation. Today we are really in the locker room. And I like that um, because really more than a pastor, I, 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 I find myself to be a coach. Um, today is just a day for us to look at God's word to get our marching orders uh, to reestablish who we are and what we're going for as a church. Now, when I was thinking about that this week, my next thought was it really isn't about us and who we are and what we're going for. The, the, the more important question, the better question to ask, who is God? And what is it that God is doing, has been doing, and will continue to do in our world? That's the question. It's not about us, it's about him. And I think I could sum up in one word the thing that God has been about from the very beginning, or almost the very beginning. Redemption. God is the redeemer who redeems. And um, he is redeeming a people for himself who will partner with God to redeem the whole world that he loves. That, to me, is God's mission statement. And I want to be a part of that. So this morning, let's go to Genesis 12. And, and uh, John 14. Because we love uh, to stand for God's word, uh, not only to show honor, but with a sense of excitement that God's going to speak, if you can stand, let's stand right now. The Lord had said to Abram, walk from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. 
and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples, all the nations on the earth will be blessed through you. That's God starting his plan of redemption right there. And in John 14, Jesus, speaking to his disciples on the night of his crucifixion, said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, would I have not told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am, and you know the place where I am going. And then Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All right, this is God's word. You can be seated. By the way, I've been coaching football the last two weeks, and I don't have a great voice right now. Um, So in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to leave everything and come follow me. Walk after me. And what's going on here is a partnership. A partnership is taking place between God and humanity. In fact, this partnership goes all the way back to the beginning because everything goes all the way back to the beginning. When God created the world, his final act in creating is he creates Adam and Eve, two creatures who the text says are little replicas or idols fashioned in God's image. In fact, you have to ask yourself when you read this, Like, why would God fashion from the earth something to look like himself? The simple answer to this is that God wants a partner. He is creating and fashioning something in his creation that's going to reflect him. That's going to reflect his glory. Someone who's going to show his face to the world, reflect his heart. So we read in creation, after he fashions Adam and Eve in his own image, this is stunning. He basically says, here are the keys to my whole world. It's yours. Rule it. But I want you to rule it. I want you to take care of it. I want you to steward it. I want you to rule it for me and with me. And we know the story. Uh, Adam and Eve take the keys, but they want to rule, but they want to do this without God. They want to rule for their glory instead of God's glory. And we see how the world falls back into ruin, back into chaos. And probably the most stunning thing in the first 12 chapters of the Bible is that as a world utterly forsakes its creator, when God could have just given up on it, He doesn't. He can't. He loves it too much. And so, starting with Genesis 12, God's heart is to redeem the world. 
all of it. For God so loves the world. And this is who God is. This is what he's up to. So now the question is, how is God going to do it? Sometimes I wonder, God, why don't you just take out your magic wand and look at this broken world and just say, poof. Like, fix it. We know he doesn't do it that way. He finds another partner. That's what's going on in Genesis 12. And he says, Abraham, I want you to leave your life and I want you to come follow me. In fact, in this text, there's something very specific that Abraham is called to leave that I think is hugely significant to the story. Abraham, leave your father's house. Now, we just kind of gloss over this detail. In Hebrew, father's house is Beit Av. Beit means house, and Av means father. So we translate this as father's house or father's household. It's their word for family. It's all over the Bible. And Beit Av in that day consisted of your family but it was extended family as well. It was not just brothers and sisters, mom and dad, but it was aunts, uncles, cousins. There could be as many as 50 to 100 people in a Beit Av. In fact, I'll show you what it looked like even just physically. Um, here's a, a house that goes back to biblical times. And I don't know how clearly you can see this, but they call it a four-room house. In that four-room house, which is also a bait of, you can see the proximity in which not just one family, but extended family of aunts, uncles, and cousins, maybe as many as 100 people, would say, that's my home. And there was all this intense relationship and interdependence that was going on. And this is at a time when people lived just to make it to the next day. And they did it through blood, sweat, and tears. So in that scenario, every family member matters. Every family member is, is significant. That's why in that day they had a bride price. To marry off a daughter what was very costly to abate of. They just lost a valuable member of their family. So you didn't have people in that world going off to find themselves or to, to try to make a name or a life for themselves. Bait of is your life. It's everything to a person. It's your protection. It's your security. It's your meaning. It's your happiness. It's your identity. It's your joy. It's your very life. And to lose bait of, you lose everything. Now the reason why it's called bait of or father's house is because everything is centered upon the father. It's a life arrangement where everything and everyone is under his care. So it's his job as the father or the patriarch to meet every single need of the household. Therefore, everything belongs to him. Now, don't think mobster. That's not what he is. He's a father. 
And he is called to be a father to everyone in the family, which means it's his job to meet every need of his household. That's to make sure everybody's well-fed, clothed, protected, housed, but it even goes beyond that. It's not just physical needs, but it's to make sure every family, family member is loved and valued and appreciated. In fact, I love this in Acts. It says this about the church. It says about God's new family. There wasn't a need among them. And that was the responsibility of a father in, in, in a bait off. It was for that family to say, there's not one need among us. Now this is what Abraham is called to leave. He's called to leave his father's house. So now we need to ask, why? Why is God asking Abraham to leave his bait of? Here's the deal. It's because God is forming a new bait of. And this new bait of is going to be the vehicle by which God's going to redeem the whole world. In fact, does anybody know what Abraham's name means? At this point in the story, it's just Abram. Av, Ram. Av means father, Ram means great. Avram, Abram, means great father. Later, God's going to change his name from Avram to Avraham. So now his name is not going to mean just great father, but it's going to be father of many nations. In other words, what God is doing here is he is creating the vehicle, the family, by which God is going to redeem the world. Now, without jumping ahead of ourselves too much, there's a huge takeaway for us. If we aren't family, and pursuing being family, if Crossroads is nothing more than a church service, or a list of programs, or we're simply defined by the doctrines that we believe, we are missing it. This whole story is about family. This whole story is about how to become part of God's family. This is why the New Testament writers are always addressing the church as brothers and sisters or my little children. These are family terms, which means we're not just an institution, but we're, we're, we're this organic uh, entity of, of intense relationship and interdependence. Where hopefully they can say about us, there's not a need among them. Now all of this still is rooted in something so basic. Because family defines who God is. The essence of God is family. This is why the doctrine of the Trinity is so foundational to the church. Because the doctrine of the Trinity teaches us that God within himself is a plurality of persons. We say one God, yet three distinct persons. I sung this all the time growing up in my church. Dave, let's get it going. 
God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Well, it doesn't have to be just you, Dave, wherever you are. <laughs> and I, I understand that this doctrine of the Trinity, is, it's a tough thing to even think about. I was always scared whenever I was interviewed as a pastor. Please don't ask me a question about the Trinity because there's no way I can express this right. <laughs> But the best way for me to explain it is this. If God would look into a mirror, that image staring back at God would be Christ. Because Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, And he, Christ, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being. And so perfect and complete is that reflection, that that reflection is its own unique person, that we call the second person of the triune God. And then between God and his perfect reflection is this flow of intimate knowledge and love. And so perfect is this flow that we say, spirit. And then God takes first person, second person, and third person of of his Godhead, and uses family terms to describe it. Father, Son, and Spirit. I love how C.S. Lewis explains the significance of of, of this doctrine. He says, perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all of the religions is that in Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even one person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity. A life, almost a kind of drama, a kind of dance, a circle of glory, of fullness and delight of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now I want us to think about what this means. It means that at the heart of the universe is relationship. That ultimate reality is not just a force, but a family of persons, of father and son and spirit. A family where each person is pouring oceans of love in the other. A a family where one is not seeking their own glory, but always seeking the glory of the other. Which means some pretty cool things for us as Christians. It means God didn't create the world because he was lonely. It means that God didn't create the world because he was on some power trip to get more glory. God already had it. God didn't make the world to get love. He already had it. God made the world to share his glory, his love, their family with us. And you and I, whether we know it or not, were made to belong to the family of God. To be in God's bait of, to know the love of the Father. In fact, this whole word that we talked about, what God is about, the word redeem or redemption or redeemer. These terms all come right out of bait of. All, all right out of the context of, of, of Beit Av. Because in the biblical world, 
When a family member would lose a piece of property, or go bankrupt, or become marginalized in any way from the bait up, it's the father's responsibility to use all the resources that he has to restore that piece of property and to bring that family member back into Beidav. When a father did that, that's called redemption. Redemption is, is being brought home. It's, it's when you, when for whatever reason, have gone outside of the bait of, for whatever reason you're marginalized from the bait of, it's the Father doing whatever it takes to bring you back in. Now we see this all throughout the biblical story. I'll give you just a few examples. Lot gets kidnapped by four tribal chieftains. What does Abraham do? It's awesome. Abraham, and this is all in Genesis 14, takes 300 men to find him. Now, why is Abraham doing this? It's because Lot's his nephew. Lot is part of his bait of. It's Abraham's responsibility to use his resources to bring Lot back into the bait of. Now go to Genesis 14, verse 14. Or you can just listen to it. It says, when Abraham heard that his relative, that's Lot, had been taken captive, he called out his 318 trained men, born in his household. Did you hear that? Abraham not only has 300 men in his, in his bait of, these are 318 trained men. See, now we just stepped into discipleship. How many trained men are in your household right now? How many sons and daughters have we trained to fight? To take on the powers and the principalities of this world. How many trained men and women are there here in Crossroads? See, if we aren't giving our best time and resources towards training the next generation of men and women who are going to take their world for Christ, we are wasting our time. Jesus gave his whole ministry to training 12 men. And so intense was this training that these 12 men changed the world. Now, this is a fun application to me right now as a parent, because I want to hear it. Parents, are you aggressively taking it upon yourself to train your sons and daughters to be Christ followers in this world? That's not on the church. That's not on the school. That's on you, parents. 
And I want to ask that question all the time to elders. I want to ask that question to our staff. What is it that we are giving our time to? As we train and equip you, I'm going to keep asking you that question. Who are you raising up? Who are you training? Who are you pouring into? It doesn't have to be 318. For Jesus, it was 12. If some of you are still curious as to why I don't preach every week, I'll tell you why I don't preach every week. Because I want to raise up the next generation of pastor preachers. If you want to know why I lead trips to Israel, it's not just because, ooh, I like to go to Israel. I get two weeks to literally push discipleship into people. If you want to know why I coach football, because for 10 hours a week, I get 38 eighth graders who I get to say things like, and I love saying this, you quit on this sprint right now, you will quit on your wife someday. It took you a second for that to register. <laughs> I love to teach these kids. They look at me with just their big eyes. You know why? They're, they're, they're longing for a man in their life. What can I expect out of you guys? What are you going to bring today? 110%. What can you expect that your coach is up? And almost every one of those kids after every practice, I don't know why they do this, but they come up to me, they hug me, and they say, thanks, coach. Abraham takes his 300 men, and he tracks Lot down and rescues him and restores Lot to Badoth. That's redemption. It's the father using all of his resources to restore the marginalized family member to the household. You go a little further in the story, and, and, and it's the story of Naomi and Ruth. You know anything about that story? Family causes Naomi's bait off to move to a different country. And then more tragedy hits. Naomi loses her husband and two sons, one of whom is married to this uh, foreigner named Ruth. So not only do they lose their husbands... Uh, and their protection, but they lose their bait of. And so what you need to know then is here are two women who are completely marginalized. They, they are now the widow. They are now the orphan. They are now the alien. They are fatherless. They are outside the bait of. And I want you to also know this. When Naomi returns to Bethlehem, because I always thought, oh, the family farm is just there waiting for her. She doesn't have anything. And in losing her bait off, not only is she on the outside looking in, but she has no hope of ever being brought back in. Except there's a redeemer. And his name is Boaz. And, and you read the story, and the first thing that Boaz does is he buys back their property at probably great cost to himself. And then he marries Ruth, and, and we want to make this the Bible's version of, 
of some Hollywood romantic movie. That's not really what's going on here. He marries Ruth because Ruth is the most hopeless. Not only is Ruth a widow and an orphan, but she's also an alien. But it's through this marriage that Boaz gives this utterly hopeless woman her life back, and he brings her back into Bedav. That's redemption. And yes, it is a, a love story, but not so much in the, in the Hollywood sense. It's, it's a love story in the biblical sense because it's a story about a redeemer who is willing to give up anything and everything to restore two helpless widows back to the Bedav. You keep going in the book and you get to Hosea. Now that's a crazy story in the Bible. Because God says to Hosea, who who is a great prophet of God, he says, Hosea, I want you to go down to the house of prostitution and I want you to pick one. I want you to pick one of the prostitutes. You talk about being marginalized. And the text says that Hosea, this great man of God, purchases a woman named Gomer. But not for a one-nighter. He purchase her, purchases her to make Gomer his, his wife. You talk about cost. This isn't just costing him financially. This is costing him his, his very reputation. A lot of people in that community probably knew who Gomer was and, and the life that she had but he does this. He takes her home and he restores Gomer back to Beit Av. And, and Gomer in all of this gets her life back. She now has a family. She bears Hosea three children. But tragically, she misses her old life and goes back to her street life. And so she's up for sale again. And God says to Hosea, go back and buy her back. Restore her to Beit Av. Redeem her. And Hosea does it at great cost to himself. Listen, all these stories in the Bible, these little stories, are pointing us to the one great story about the great Redeemer God. Who will do whatever it takes to bring us back into his family. God over and over again says, I am your redeemer. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You're mine. And so when God says, I'm your redeemer, I I first want us to know what God is saying about us. It means that apart from God, we are all orphaned, we are all widowed, we are all marginalized, we've all played the whore. It means we're lost and we can't get back in. But 
But I want us to hear more importantly what it says about God. When God says, I am Redeemer, he is first of all saying, I am your Father. And God isn't just any father. God is a certain kind of father. God is, is like Abraham who will risk his own life to set the captive free. He's like Boaz where, where he sees us in our widowed orphan condition and, and, and will give up everything he has to give up to get us back in. He's like Hosea who sees us in our prostitution and our propensity to return to prostitution, but he's still willing to do absolutely anything to get us back. And look at what God gave up. Now we're into the gospel. God gave up his most precious resource. He gave up his very son. Son, would you leave my side? Would you go across all worlds? Would you seek and save my lost people? Find them. Redeem them. Bring them back. And the gospel is that Jesus came. And when Jesus came, he, he, he taught us about Bedav. He, he taught us to address God as Father. And he taught us what kind, of, what, what kind of Father our God is. The parable of the prodigal. He says, God is a Father who, irrespective of who you are, what you've done, he's a Father who's on the porch waiting for you. And when he sees you, he's going to run. To welcome you back into his house. Jesus even said things like this. He said, to, to see me is to see the Father. So if you and I want to know what, what, what our Father is really like, all we need to do is, is see Jesus. And then in our text today, Jesus says this. He says, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And so Jesus came to this world. He came to find lost, to seek and save the lost, to find marginalized, orphaned, widowed, uh, people who have prostituted their life. And he came, as to, came here to show us the face of the Father, to show us the heart of the Father, to show us the love of the Father, and to bring us back home to the Father's house. In fact, I love what we just read today in John 14. Jesus says, in my father's bait of, in my father's house, there are many rooms. And I go and prepare a place for you in my father's family. And what a price was paid. Jesus as our big brother and God as our father gave up absolutely everything to restore us. And if all of this is true, and it's not an if to me, it's a hypothetical if, it means that we've been made for family. It means that we've been made to know the love of the Father and to belong in his bait of as sons and daughters 
which then means some very practical things for us today. And I want to start with this. I want to start with people who don't like this idea of, of God being father because you have been so hurt and wounded by your own father. But I want to start with this. Even your hurts and wounds by your earthly father should speak to the fact that your heart longs for a father who believes in you, who loves you, who disciplines you perfectly. And you have one. And Jesus said, I came to show you him. And I came to bring you back to him. So if you haven't done it yet, come home. And the way you come home is, is, is you recognize Jesus for who he says he is. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. No one can come to the Father but through me. And he provided the way. He lived the life that we could never live, and he died the death that we deserve to die. So we can be sons and daughters in our Father's house. My second uh, point of, of application is this. People talk about our nation falling apart all the time, and, and we look to politics, and we look to politicians. I, I, I say, enough! It's a lack of fathers. Let me just show you some, some, some statistics. You guys know I'm not a statistics person. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes, 32 times the average. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes, 20 times the average. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes, 14 times the average. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes, 9 times the average. 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes, 10 times the average. 85% of all youths in prison come from fatherless homes, 20 times the average. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 43% of U.S. children today live without their father. Now when I look at how the early church won their world for Christ, what they did is they hit Rome right in its Achilles heel. This is our Achilles heel. Boy, do we have an opportunity. Dads, let's be dads. Let's make that the top priority of our life, to be disciple makers with our own kids. I want to extend this to parents and not just make this about the men, but also about the women. Parents, invest in your kids. And I want to call all of us to be spiritual mothers, spiritual fathers, spiritual brothers, spiritual sisters. First of all, to, the, to our own people in our church. There are so many in, of our own that, that need this, that are longing for it. We have to carve out time for it. 
But we're not called just to our own. We are called to the marginalized and to the widow and to the orphan, to the prostitute. We are called to be everything our father and our big brother has been to us. And to be that to our world. Some people ask the question, why did God pick Abraham and why didn't he pick someone else? And of course the Bible gives a great answer. It says Abraham had such great faith. But I believe there's another thing that we overlook. In, in, in Genesis 18, there's this wonderful story about Abraham and how he and Sarah treat three strangers. Now, we know what Abraham didn't know, uh, that these three strangers just happened to be God himself and two angels, and that God is probably Christ, pre-incarnate Christ. But Abraham doesn't know it. But what this guy does is they kill the fatted calf, They offer a banquet. They welcome him in. In fact, the first thing Abraham does when he sees three strangers out in the distance is he runs. Now, that doesn't do anything for you, but I've been in the Middle Eastern culture enough to know no elderly man ever runs. Two examples in the Bible. Abraham... And the father and the prodigal son. And Abraham is already showing us what we are to be to our world. And see, when a person really knows home, when they really know the love of the father, What they do then is they offer home to the world. And we do it for our own. And we do it for the widow. And we do it for the orphan. And we do it for the stranger. And we do it for the prostitute. And we do it for for anyone who in any way is marginalized. We do it for strangers. And this is our vision. The crossroads. Is to be all that God has been to us. Family. Home. To be that for our world. It costs God everything. Because family's costly. To do family and to offer family is a costly, costly thing. I want you to just quiet your heart. We're not going to do anything crazy, but bow your head. I'm not going to do anything crazy right now, but I just want us right now to just meditate, pray, confess, repent, prepare our hearts for the banquet that God offers us. I'm going to have the choir sing to help us in that.